Austin. Thank you, worship team. Good morning, church. How you doing? Good. My name is Jeff Skipper, um, the guy yelling for kids to leave. Uh, you know, got to get them out of here. Uh, it's great to see you guys. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at the church. Uh, this morning, we're continuing a series that we started last week through uh, the chapter uh, in Hebrews, Hebrews 11. And so it's good to finally settle back into a routine after Advent uh, and Christmas. Hope you had a good Christmas and New Year's and uh, hope you got some good gifts, uh, which isn't always the case. Have you ever just gotten a really bad gift? I'll give you a second to think. I heard some people laugh already. Um, you know, where the person tried, they really tried, but they just totally missed you. I remember years ago, uh, Marissa, my wife, got me a gift. It was all wrapped up, and I, I figured it'd be uh, some books or exercise equipment or just something that I liked. And I opened it, and it was a badminton set. Uh, I might have quoted Jesus when he said, have you been with me this long and still you don't know me? Uh, that's what I felt. You know, I I'd never remember saying that I liked badminton. I'd played a couple times. I mean, I think I re-gifted it later. Sorry if you got that, if you're watching it. Um, you know, for somebody else, that would have been a great gift. Uh, she wanted to please me. We laugh about it today. Uh, but it, she just didn't connect with, with how I felt loved and, and, and what I valued. And generally, we want to please others, right? We want to please our loved ones. We want to please our teachers, our, our, our bosses, and so on. But it's important to know how they are pleased. How they are pleased. That's really the important factor there. And God's the same way. He's not pleased with any way that we choose to relate to him. And so if we believe that there is a God, uh, even if you don't believe there is a God, just play along with me. If you did believe there was a God and that he, he made you and we're going to be accountable to him, it's, that's pretty important to know. Like, how is he pleased if I have to stand before this God, right? How do I get his smile? What fills him up in the way that I relate to him? Because we don't want to show up with the equivalent of a badminton set, right, before God. Now, the author of Hebrews, he's writing to Christians who had made a profession of faith in the past, but they were in danger of falling away from the faith, backsliding. And so in Hebrews 11, maybe if you're unfamiliar with this chapter, you've never read it before, he's giving examples from the Old Testament of those who persevered in the faith. So he's saying to those struggling people then, and he's saying to us now, he's saying, hey, this is the family you belong to, right? This is how they lived. Look at how they lived. Think about all the difficulties they faced and how God sustained them through all of these trials. And he says the same to us. And the key ingredient through the whole chapter, and it doesn't take knowing the Greek or anything to figure it out, is that repeated phrase all the way through the chapter, by faith. They had faith. That's how they persevered. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to walk through their stories. So even though we're in the New Testament, it's kind of cool. We'll also be going through the Old Testament. Uh, last week, Drew looked at verse 1. Uh, what is faith? And today we're going to continue uh, to intro that theme by looking at verses 5 and 6. And we're mainly going to focus on verse 6. Uh, so I want to read this text. Okay, it'll be on the screen or in your worship folder. Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith... It is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is God's word. I'm going to mainly focus on verse 6 this morning and uh, through three points. You'll see an outline in your worship folder. Uh, mission impossible. Uh, You've got to have faith. George Michael reference, if you caught that or not. 
uh, and pleased. Okay, let's, let's walk through this this morning. Uh, Mission Impossible. Recently, I have three little boys. They're ages 6, 8, and 10, uh, and I have probably too much fun with them sometimes. And recently, I told them to try to bite their necks. I'm not going to act it out for you. I hope you don't act it out now. You can try it home on the drive home or something. Uh, it was hilarious. Uh, I also told them try to count to infinity. That got old really quick in the car. Um, I asked them to hold their breath forever. I wouldn't recommend that one. Uh, you know, they learned that some things just aren't possible. Uh, you can't count to infinity. You can't bite your neck. You can't hold your breath forever. They learned some things just aren't possible. Uh, when Johnny Cash was just a boy, he was 12 years old. Uh, maybe if you've seen the movie Walk the Line, he had an older brother who was 15. His name was Jack, who died in a terrible accident. And Jack's dream was to be a preacher. And so when he died, Johnny Cash made him this promise. Uh, he said, you know, because Jack would never be the preacher that he wanted to be, he said, I'll be the preacher. I'll spread the gospel through singing gospel music. That was his ambition. Johnny Cash wanted to be a gospel singer. That's what he started out as. Uh, the problem was when he went to Memphis to Sun Records, the producer said, uh, no, we're not doing gospel music, right? Uh, Elvis Presley is singing That's All Right Now Mama and, and Hound Dog, and, and, and that's what the people want, and so that's what we're going to give them. And so to break into the industry, Johnny Cash played that music, but he kept pushing gospel music, and the producer kept resisting, and so he actually tricked him into recording his first gospel song. Uh, he was married at the time to a woman named Vivian uh, and as he got more famous, his home life started hurting. She wanted him home more because he was getting big, but he wanted to do shows. And so as she was worried about his faithfulness to their vows, as he was on the road all the time, he wrote her a song to reassure her, which the movie goes by, the title of this song, right? And the chorus says, I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. Uh, I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends out for the tie that binds because you're mine, I walk the line. That was his vow. Uh, what the producer didn't know is that it was a hidden gospel song. Uh, it was an expression not only of romantic faithfulness, but of spiritual faithfulness. It was a pledge to his wife, but also to God. Actually, just before he died, Johnny Cash said, uh, the producer never knew it, but I Walk the Line was my first gospel hit. Now, the truth is, he couldn't live up to his pledge. Uh, he was unfaithful, he spiraled into addiction, they, they got divorced. His close friend, Merle Haggard, I grew up on his music, thanks to my dad, uh, his friend said, Johnny Cash was out of line all, all his life. He said, I walk the line was kind of ludicrous for him to sing, he never walked any line. And our default assumption and how we relate to God, back to that question of how can I please him, how can I get his approval, our default wiring or assumption is by walking the line. Right? By making this vow that I'll be good and I'll be moral, I'll do more, I'll prove myself, which is somewhat understandable because that's kind of how the way the, the, way the world works. Right? If you perform, you get the promotion, you get the pat on the back, right? you get the approval. But in the Bible, when people take that horizontal strategy vertically, it never works out. Right In Matthew 7, Jesus said on Judgment Day, some will stand before him and list their moral resume. For why he should accept them. They'll say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? In other words, weren't we good and religious? Didn't we walk the line? And if, if you've never heard that before and you're reading it, you're shocked at God's answer. Because he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
I have to like read that again. It's not what I expect. In the parable of the prodigal son, which we read in community Bible reading on Thursday, the elder brother pled a similar case to his dad for why he should receive preferential treatment over his younger brother. What did the older brother say? He said, I've been slaving for you all of my life. I've never swerved. Look at my record. I've walked the line all of my life. And yet, at the end of the parable, he ends up alone outside of the party, wallowing in anger and self-pity. Think of Israel in the Old Testament. They made sacrifices. They had feasts. They went through all of the right motions. And God said, your offerings stink. Get them out of here because I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, some of you, this isn't surprising, but if you've never heard this, or maybe if you've heard it so many times it's become numb, or it doesn't register, that pattern should cause us to slam the brakes on our assumptions uh, for how we think God is pleased in an ultimate sense. If the pious don't get in, if the good son doesn't make it, what hope do we have? Right? The message is trying to get God's smile by being good is an, an impossible mission. Romans 3 says, no one is righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, Johnny Cash isn't the only one who has failed his vows, right? None of us have walked the line in our thoughts and our words and our actions. And the entire Bible is screaming, who can? Psalm 24, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? Here's who, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Raise your hand if you meet the qualifications. Don't raise your hand, right? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Oh yeah, got that one, right? No, no. And and those in this list of heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11 are no different, which makes me take a deep breath. Go read the lives of Abraham and Noah and Jacob and Moses and David and Rahab and Israel, and you'll find liars, murderers, adulterers, prostitutes, deceivers, and drunkards. Their biographies read a lot more like Johnny Cash's, a mixture of light and darkness, of saint and sinner, Hebrews verse 6 and chapter 11 says it's impossible to please God solely on the basis of what we do because that would involve no relationship with God. And hey, newsflash, God actually wants you. Just like you want your children's hearts. You don't want just what they can do for you. You want their hearts. You want them. And salvation by works is a transactional, heartless, distant arrangement of I do for you, now you owe me where we actually stay in control. And Romans 8.8 says, those who are in the flesh without faith cannot please God. It doesn't work. The strategy doesn't work. That's the badminton set. So what does work? Well, we see Jesus spending time with the broken and those who had absolutely blown it in life. We see God welcoming weeping tax collectors, messy younger brothers, and repentant sinners. Verse 2, he's commending them. He's commending those in this list. So what did they have that others didn't? Uh, We went to Disney recently between Christmas and New Year's. Why? I don't know, but we did. Uh, Slammed, right? Uh, Almost every ride. It was like a 90-minute wait. And imagine trying to entertain three little boys in a 90-minute wait, right, on these rides many times. And so we're trying to entertain them. They're fighting, and, you know, I'm just wrangling them in. And at some point, a kid just literally just starts to fall backwards towards the concrete and yells, Daddy, catch me! And somehow I was close enough where I got him. I found out he was doing a trust fall, although I don't think he realized that's what he was doing. 
And then, of course, they all wanted to do it, but they were still a little bit reluctant. Like, they'd fall back, but then they'd step back to catch themselves before they got to me. And I was straight up offended when they did that. I'm petty. I know. I'm sensitive, Dad. Imagine that. Because for them to not fall back with all of their weight meant that they questioned one of two things, my ability or my character. Either A, I'm not strong enough to catch you, or B, I'm not good and I'm going to let you fall and smash your head, which mm, sometimes that might be the one I want to do. But when they finally fell with all their dead weight and I caught them, we all started to laugh. And what did they say? Again, Daddy, again, again. And it pleased me. Because by falling into my arms, they let me exercise my full ability and, dare I say, right of my fatherhood. And it brought me joy when they threw it all on me. Their faith, putting it all on me, keeping no control over the situation to themselves, it pleased me. It glorified me, in a sense. And they had a blast. And what made it work is they didn't have to know, know it all before they fell. They didn't overanalyze the situation. Daddy, what angle should I be at? Now, how close to me are you really going to be? How much can you lift? What, you know, No, they knew two things. Daddy is strong. Daddy's good. That's it. They fell. <laughs> Daddy's strong, daddy's good. That's all I need to know. And Hebrews 11 is a list of trust falls. And verse 6 says they knew two big things about God. If you look back at verse 6, that led them to abandon themselves and trust and follow him. It says, for whoever would draw near to God must, here we go, one, believe that he exists. Right? Not in some general vague sense. James says even the devils or the demons believe God exists in that way. But, but believe that he exists as revealed in his word. He is Abel. He is Yahweh. He's the God who can do wonders, who believe that he exists. And secondly, he rewards those who seek him. In other words, he's merciful and he's good. He's able and he's good. And the author re- reminds us all of these stories. He said, hey, remember Abraham? How he offered up Isaac when God told him to? And he had no idea how that was going to work out. How he left home when God called him, not knowing where he was going. The only thing he knew was who was leading him. Remember how Noah built a huge boat in the desert with no water in sight and people mocked him for years and yet he trusted God. These are stories of trust falls. Anne Lamott said this, she said, the opposite of faith is not doubt but certainty. The opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. It's other words. In other words, it's having to know it all, control it all, see it all before obeying, before following. And that's not faith. Faith is moving out in spite of not having all the answers. It's about relinquishing control to God and not fearing uncertainty because we know God is able and God is good. And God always keeps his promises. Where do you struggle with that? Where are you struggling with that? How is needing control keeping you from a life of faith? A life of obedience, a life of following God. Look beneath maybe where you're anxious about your kids, about your future, about finances. Is there an idol of control underneath that? Is there a lack of willingness to trust God? Rather than it being, oh, I'm just being responsible, I want to be wise, like I like to say, is it really just unbelief? Just don't trust God enough to follow him, step out, obey to what he's calling you to. My boys uh, do jujitsu, and I started uh, doing it as well, just to stay one step ahead of them. I don't trust them, you know. I just know, you know, know enough to where they can't get me yet. Uh, and I've learned uh, jujitsu is not all about submissions. It's not all about choking somebody out and doing arm bars and stuff. But it's also about weight distribution, because when someone puts all of their weight on you in just the right spot, you begin to deflate. <laughs> 
Trust me, I know, I've done it, right? I've been on the receiving end of that. And faith is rolling all of your weight, your sins, your, your fears, your worries, your hopes, your guilt, your shame, your future, your doubts, your uncertainties onto God and saying, you're the only one who can bear the weight of all of this. I can't bear the weight of all this. My spouse, God forgive me of putting that on her or him. They cannot bear the weight of all that. My good deeds can't bear the weight. The approval of others, status, my full 401k can't bear the weight of it. My kids turning out okay. All of those will inevitably deflate under the weight of my sins and my worries and my hope and my shame and my guilt and my doubts. Only you can handle all of that. Only you can bear the weight of all of that, which shows it's not the strength of your faith, but the object that really matters. We say that all the time. It's not the strength of your faith. It's the object of your faith that ultimately matters. You can have all the faith you want in a chair with two legs, and you're going to hit the ground every time, right? You can have the tiniest bit of faith in a concrete bench, and it'll hold you up and anything else you put on it. Jesus said you just need faith like a mustard seed, just the smallest. So the question isn't if we're looking to someone or something to hold all of that weight, but what are we looking to? And the Bible says faith in anything else other than God and his grace our right answers, our own goodness will collapse under the weight of our sins. Now, of course, the question is, okay, but how can, we, how can we know God is worthy of our trust? How can we know he can bear that weight? Well, thankfully, the gospel isn't about our faithfulness to God. It's about God's faithfulness to us. The gospel is not about our faithfulness to God. It's about his faithfulness to us. It's not about our ability to walk the line. That ship has sailed. It's about his willingness to walk it for us, which he did. That's what Christmas is about. That's what Easter's about. That's what Holy Week's about, right? He sent his only son to walk the line, to live the life that none of us have lived, to die the death we deserve to die, to bear the weight of our sins. And guess what? Those sins weighed him down all the way to hell, and it still couldn't defeat him. He conquered death and sin and hell. That's what the resurrection's all about. So this God is all good and he's all powerful. So faith is saying with the psalmist that we read earlier, who, who have I in heaven but you? There's nothing else on earth that I have except you. It's showing up with all of your shame, all of your guilt, all of your fear and saying, you're my only hope, Jesus. And he says, come to me. I want all of it. Put it all on me. Because it glorifies me when you put it on me. He wants you in all of your mess. That's salvation. And in life, faith is continuing that thought process, right? Follow the dominoes. It's saying, well, in that case, if I can trust you in the biggest things, then I can trust you over what I can see and what I think I know in life. And where you tell me to go, I'll go. And what you tell me to do, I'll do. It's saying, I feel insufficient for what you're calling me to, but guess what? That's the point. Your strength is made perfect in my weakness. And you love to call the unqualified to show you have the power to save. Are you keeping one leg back to catch you just in case he doesn't come through? What is that? What's your plan B, right? If so, there's no wonder you have so much stress, so much anxiety, so much worry living that way, controlling that weight, sitting in that throne that we were never designed to sit in. 
Are you keeping one leg back or are you like a child with a good father, giving it all, all to him, trust falling into his arms so he can display his love for you and his power for you, in you, and through you? When I look at Hebrews 11, what I see is a life of freedom. I, I want that kind of life. Right? We know the moralist isn't free. The older brother style of life, he's shackled to his performance. That's, that's not freedom. But neither is the, the moral rebel, the younger brother. He looked really free on the outside. Right? He probably had a successful Instagram account with a lot of followers. He's just bucking all moral restraints, but underneath he's searching too. Both are going about the same goal, just two different exhausting ways. Neither of those are a life of faith. Neither of those enter the world from a place of deep security as a beloved child. And like them, we do the same, one way or the other. And it's often by playing dress-up to get the smile of other people, right? We substitute God's approval for people's approval, which is somewhat what our first parents did, right? Our first parents in the garden, they put on fig leaves to hide their shame. And we do the exact same thing. We hide too. We wear masks. We resist vulnerability of being truly known by God and others out of a deep fear of what? That we're going to be abandoned. If anybody saw us for who we really are, then we'll be left. We'll be alone. And so what do we do? We fake it until we make it. But we never make it. Instead of pleasing God, we play the people-pleasing game. And we create what Thomas Merton called false selves, which is a tragic way to live. And the Apostle Paul hit on this in Galatians 1. He noticed this juxtaposition. You're living for one or the other. He said, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We'll never be free as long as we live for the smile of others. We'll stuff our true selves down, who God made us to be, and we'll just wither away inside. But I see something different in Hebrews 11. There's nothing fake here. There's no religion or irreligion. There's a third way. There's freedom in the security of living under the smile of God in his grace in Christ. They all knew they had God's smile before they ever set out, so they were free. They could live a full life. Do you have that depth of security? When you think of God looking for Adam and Eve in the garden after they sin, what look do you picture on his face? He's looking for them, and he says, where are you? It wasn't a geographical question. He, he knew where they were at. <laughs> right? That was a question of connection. He was looking for them. Where are you? What look do you picture on God's face when he thinks about you and he asks you the same question? Where are you at? Notice verse 6 doesn't say, by faith, God tolerates us. Or he begrudgingly accepts us and he rolls his eyes and he sighs and exasperated and he says, whatever, I guess. No, it says he's pleased. Pleased. Just as he said over his son, Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am Well pleased, he sees us in Jesus' righteousness. James K.A. Smith said this, God is not tapping his foot judgmentally inside the door as you sneak in, crawling over the threshold in shame. He's the father running towards you, losing his sandals on the way, his robes spilling off his shoulders with a laughing smile whose joy says, I can't believe you came home. This is what grace looks like. Jesus came to set the captives free from sin and death, from idols of control. He came to set us free from fear of man, from condemnation and despair, from fear of the future, from from the unknown. Dane Ortland said in his new book, Gentle and Lowly, we will be less sinful in the next life than we are now, but we will not be any more secure in the next life than we are now. 
And that frees us to want to please God in the way we live. Because he's not ultimately pleased by what we do and we're saved by grace, we want to please him now in all that we do. Does that make sense? Because think of all these verses in the New Testament. Colossians 1 says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. There's that obedience element, right? 2 Corinthians 5, we make it our aim to please him. 1 John 3, we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And to break that down more simply, pleased is just another way of saying walked with God. Enoch is mentioned in four verses in Genesis, and twice in those four verses it says he walked with God. That was Enoch. He walked with God. I, I expected something more spectacular from a guy that God took before he even died. God wasn't just taking prophets and other people who did awesome miracles and split seas and all of these things. They all died, but the guy who simply walked with him. And that's what the Lord wants. He wants us to walk with him. Like we go on walks with one another. And when we go on walks with one another, we let our walls down and we open up our hearts and we, we just enjoy one another's presence. The Westminster Confession of Faith says faith, faith acts in different ways in different circumstances. It responds differently with respect to what God says and what situation we're in. What does that mean? In other words, it's saying faith is just being in a real relationship. That's what Abel and Gideon and Enoch did. They prayed. They listened. They trusted. They lived in God's presence. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson asked this. He said, what if all your headstone said was, she walked with God? Or he walked with God and that was it. Could anything more beautiful be said of you? That we walked with God. Are you tired of trying to prove yourself? Are you on an impossible mission? Are you tired of trying to control it all, of people pleasing? Do you long for the rest of just rolling it all onto him? Verse 6 says, look to Jesus. And in Jesus, see God's heart for you and believe in faith and draw near to him, it says, and he will reward you. The father is at the end of the driveway, scanning the horizon, calling us to come home and rest and then begin to truly live. That's the good news of the gospel. Let's go to him now. Father, thank you uh, for your word. The New Testament says that these stories were written down for our instruction Lord, uh, we're to look back and learn from those who came before us in the faith. And we see people who are messy, but who trusted you, who walked with you. God, we long for a life like that, to be that open and vulnerable, to take off our masks and fig leaves and being dressed up and just be with you, our Father, and walk with you. That simple as we look to Jesus. Thank you for coming and doing what we couldn't do. Holy Spirit, come and free us from that game, that competition, that ladder, that rat race of trying to earn our way with you, liberate us from seeking out salvation apart from you, and coming back to only you with empty hands and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire other than you. And you receive us. And even if we've come to you before and we do belong to you, that's faith and repentance is returning to you over and over and over again. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that all of us would turn back to you this morning. And in your name we pray, amen. 
Hopefully you can hear me. There we go. Uh, this benediction, there's a twofold purpose to this benediction. One is to remind us that salvation is by grace, that if your faith is in Jesus, he is smiling over you, that God is pleased with you. The scripture says that you have the only yes that matters already over you, so you can rest. And in light of that, it's a word of sending. Therefore, go. Go live a life that trusts God. Live a life of faith. Apply that to every area of your life. And so if your faith is in him, receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in God's peace.